Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Leland Miller joins us now, China-based book international CEO. Leland, we've got to have a really important conversation. I'm sure it's frustrated you through the week that everyone almost exclusively, I say everyone, a lot of people, have been overwhelmingly focused on whether this is a Lehman moment or not. You think there should be a bigger focus elsewhere. Let's start there, Leland. Where? Well, you, you have to start just saying this is not China's Lehman moment. I think everyone's at the point where they're sort of understanding that there's not major contagion risk here. Uh, China has the tools to be able to deal with it. The real signal here is, is what she is doing in, in the in the property sector. Earlier in 2021, and we saw this very clearly in China Beige Book data, there was a de-risking of the financial sector, much tighter conditions as the years went on, the year went on. The property sector has been in the midst of a de-risking for the last, say, six months or so, which is which has created this uh, much lower growth, much less access to capital. This is this is a paradigm shift for China's growth model. When she looks forward, I think he sees the end of this economic growth model as it stands right now. There is too much risk. There's too much non-productive uses of capital. Uh, good money chasing bad. And so at this point, you know, this is investors should be looking at the medium-term trajectory of growth, which is going to be much lower than I think people understand it right now. How much lower do you think? I've seen numbers in the low fives for next year. What are you talking about, Leland? Fours, threes? What do you think? Look, 2022 is going to be very tricky because you start off at the beginning of the year with the Beijing Olympics and you have the party Congress at the end of the year. There's no way that the party is going to allow bad headlines or disruptions right up into the party Congress, which is you know, held twice a decade. It's where she is going to appoint himself truly president for life and maybe appoint successors. It's going to be a big deal. So the question is really 2023 and beyond because 2022 is a bit hazy in the way that they want to handle that run up. Uh, we're, we're looking at numbers. They can keep them higher for longer, but 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 they're going to have to truly downshift. We're not talking about you know a tenth of a point here. We're going to have to talk about full percentage points going forward uh, in growth because they're not going to have the property sector driver, and they're not going to be able to simply snap their fingers and transition from investment uh, to consumption because they're not doing any of the structural reforms necessary for that right now. How sustainable, Leland, is the framework of the Chinese economy to handle a 3-4% growth rate after basically hinging itself on that 7-8-9% growth rate that we've seen? It is absolutely capable. The only reason the party hasn't gotten away with it is because there's been decades of of, of, uh, zealotry around the idea you have to have a GDP target, you have to meet that target. If you just accepted slower growth, now look, foreign investors, commodity firms, everyone's gonna be thrown for a loop globally, but China itself could embrace slower, healthier growth. It would improve the dynamics inside China. It would stop the debt buildup. All of a sudden, capital could go to productive uses instead of non-productive uses. It would be extremely important for China. And I think that's why the party is doing it right now. The, 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 the true risk here is that foreign investors just haven't gotten the memo and they're, they're not expecting what's coming next. Well, let's talk about those foreign investors, Leland, because China also was supposed to be in the process of opening its financial markets. Does what Xi Jinping is doing now internally in China run counter to that? 
It does. And, and there's 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 just a major conflict here. Um, she is is facing, you know, is faced inward. He is he is doing a huge rectification campaign in the run up to, to the party Congress to to show that the social compact has changed between the party and the people. Now, the party is, is not focused on growth for growth sake or, or, or creation of wealth. It's there for distributing wealth and making sure everybody's happy and rich. So there is a major domestic focus right now. You know, that conflicts dramatically with the idea that, that you're going to make capital markets hospitable to foreign investors. So, Leland, this goes directly to the question of the dollar bonds of Evergrande. If they perhaps, if the, the regulators in China manage to avoid contagion risks within the population, but allow these bonds to default, is there a larger message that it is dangerous and unpredictable to invest in dollar bonds from Chinese companies going forward? Absolutely. The, the risk of this is shot upward. And it doesn't mean that they're going to, to, to try to screw foreign investors. But could they be any clearer in signaling where the priorities are right now? You know, if, if you're investing in, in, in dollar bonds, you are somewhere in the middle to the bottom of the priority, priority list for Evergrande and overall. So uh, the idea that these are sort of non, non-zero risk investments or, or, or low risk investments, I should say, uh, you have to crank up your risk profile for these tools because you don't know how deep these crackdowns are gonna go for the next year plus. This has been such an important conversation, Leland. Don't be a stranger, stay close. Let's catch up again soon because I imagine we'll be talking about this issue for a while. Leland Miller there, China Beige Book International CEO. Let's talk to Michael Gayford, Barclays Chief U.S. Economist. Michael, Kaylee talked about real yields and this adjustment we've seen in the past 24 hours as well. Daryl Cronk talked about the belly of the curve, yields higher on fives and out. Do you think we're pricing in hikes a little bit too quickly here based on what you heard in that Fed call a little bit earlier this week? No, I think I think given the first of all, good morning um, and thank you for the for the question. I think given what you heard, no. I, I think you 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 are hearing hawkish rhetoric out of central banks. The the Fed giving you the signal on taper, the Bank of England, you know, signaling tighter monetary policy may be appropriate. We can debate whether or not we think it's the right policy, depending on how you think inflation is going to play out and where the risks really are. But I think given the communication, no, I, I think markets have been right in terms of absorbing the message. That, that the normalization of policy has started. The great exit, if you will, from these emergency policy settings has begun and, and maybe even accelerating. Well, let's attack that line of thinking, not the should, shouldn't. Let's do the will, won't. What sure. they will do, what they mm-hmm. won't do. What do you think they will do? What will that rate path look like through the next couple of years? Well, I think for the for the Fed, obviously, step one is get to taper. And I think there's now a very high bar to, to not taper, given given Powell's comments. And and the message that they'll be done by the middle of next year opens the door. I, I, whether they walk through that door or not, we don't know. We need to see where inflation will, will be. The, the Bank of England has now set up a situation where the market's pricing in about two hikes. Uh, over over the next year, and and they may have a small majority in order to to deliver those early uh, early next year. So it's probably a coin toss whether or not you get a hike in in the U.S. next year. It's a nine to nine split right now on on the committee. Uh, but I think the the Fed would argue, yeah, okay, fine, we might get started, but look. Three years from now, we still think we're going to be below neutral. So it's a it's a blend, and that's why I think a steepening in the yield curve made made a lot of sense. We may get started sooner than, than we thought we were just even a couple quarters ago, but we still think it's, it's going to be a gradual cycle 
and and the neutral rate is is you know we're not going to be touching the neutral rate over that whole forecast period uh, from from the Fed projections. Michael, so that's I, why I think you can still argue for a steeper curve. I want to get a, a more elaboration on the great exit is starting. This sounds dramatic. Mm-hmm. It is dramatic after years uh, and frankly months of extreme accommodation after the pandemic, and yet we have not seen any major moves in markets in response. Right. Can this stay, or is there a cumulative uh, sort of response, a cumulative effect by all the central banks taking a similar type of more hawkish tone at the same time? So I think that's a great, it's a great question. And you look, and, and I, I think there, there probably is a day of reckoning at, at some point that no, we all can't be, when, the, when that ship turns globally, historically, you're gonna get volatility. Uh, so in your previous segment, you talked about downside risk to China growth. The central bank of Brazil tightened 100 basis points. We think we think Mexico does 25 next week. The Fed's going to be starting tapering. The Bank of England p- potentially hikes early next year. That's a lot of you know acute potentially the the, the ship turning in a way that's coordinated globally, and it, it reflects the nature of the shock, of course, which was a coordinated pandemic shock. We're kind of past the V in terms of we've gotten that sharp snapback in economic growth. Growth could be moderating globally going forward. Central bank policy could be normalizing. That's not always a great recipe for for markets. So here it's about the speed of that removal against where market expectations are. So So, far, markets want that. Right. And it hasn't been destabilizing. And we'll have to see whether that balance can be maintained. This is one thing I was worrying about last night as John Farrow was talking to Priya Misra. I was just quietly worrying about this uh, idea of higher yields around the world leading to lower foreign buying of treasuries. And what if there is not substantial domestic demand to keep yields where they are at a time of Fed tapering, even if supply isn't that big or is a lot lower than it has been in the past? Could you foresee some sort of development like that? Sure. And in, in, in that world, I think what you would be arguing is that rates would have to back up a little bit and would therefore tighten financial conditions on the margin and help to moderate growth in, in the U.S. So it's, it's a scenario that I think we have to be aware of and, and see if that plays out. That would mean you're going to get more tightening, kind of more effect on, on GDP per Fed tighten, if you will, because you're, you're arguing rates should be higher, all else equal given that net shift in demand for treasuries. Michael, I want to talk about the consumer because in just the last couple of days, we've heard more and more about supply chain issues companies are facing, one of them being Costco, who last night says we're going to have to raise prices for items on our shelves by three and a half to four and a half percent. To what extent is the consumer still going to be able to tolerate that if we aren't getting significant wage inflation? Well, I I think um, I, I would argue that I think we have enough, say, ammunition in the pipeline for the consumer to keep spending going despite what could be potentially higher prices on on some goods. So we, we still have a lot of excess saving that's out there on household balance sheets. And, and we still think there's going to be a lot of employment growth. So as you know, income generated from labor markets isn't just where, where wages are, but it's hours worked, it's total employment. So mm-hmm. from an aggregate perspective, I still think there's enough momentum there to keep household spending, say, clicking along at reasonable rates, even though, yes, there's certainly underlying price pressures now that we didn't have 12 to 36 months ago. So, so I, I think we're, we're still comfortable with where the U.S. consumer is. So let's talk further about employment then, Michael. Obviously, you still have a persistently lower labor force participation rate. You're starting to see those additional benefits rolling off, but you aren't seeing the subsequent increase that many were expecting when you removed that incentive not to work. 
What do you make of what's going on in the labor market right now and how structural these issues are? Yeah, so I think this is the literally the big unknown for, for the U.S. recovery. Does that participation rate rebound? Is it a permanent exit from, from the workforce? What, what I make of it, I think there's a lot of factors, you know, keeping restraining employment and, and restraining a return to the workforce. I still think, you know, we can't really parse it all out because there's a lot of moving parts here. I still think the number one important reason that's destabilizing labor markets is fear of infection and infection mm-hmm. risk. And and I, I know that's been a well-worn, you know, wheel at, at this at this stage of the pandemic. But if you look where hiring came off in the last employment report, all leisure and hospitality, all retail. Outside of those, hiring was still pretty good. So I think if we want to return, you know, and if we want to understand the structural outcome in the labor market, we have to, you know, we have to get a control on, on the pandemic. I, it's, it's simple to say, hard to do, but I still think that's the driving force. We've got to get you out of the basement, Mike. Back to Manhattan. It's going to happen soon. Uh, we're, we're actually back in the office three days a week now. Good. So we're getting there. How do you, how do you split it, Mike? Do you do Monday at home, Friday at home? Is that how it works? A longer weekend at home? It, it, it varies depending on whether we're seeing people, you know, face to face. That is actually happening uh, again. It Good depends to hear. whether I, I have interviews with uh, with my friends on Bloomberg or not as well. Very cool. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Great to catch Thank up. You. Michael Gaffin there of Barclays, chief U.S. economist. We're not talking about a Lehman moment. We are talking about the removal of some of the dynamism of global growth from the China slowdown. Mike Darda really uh, covers everything on the intersection of global economy, uh, the global economy through the lens of the United States. Joining us now, MKM Partners, chief economist and macro strategist. I want to start there. How much would a material slowdown in China's growth affect the United States? It's a great question. You know, we don't know offhand. It really critically depends on how much contagion there is. And so if we listen to what Fed Chair Powell said this week, if financial conditions and credit market conditions were to tighten drastically, uh, that's, you know, that would essentially deliver the same kind of headwind as if the Fed uh, started to tighten much more quickly than expected. So far, however, that hasn't really happened. So uh, viewers can watch a few different indicators uh, to keep tabs on potential contagion. One is just the performance of the high yield market in the U.S. because it's very sensitive to liquidity and growth shocks. So if China goes into a tailspin that's likely to be highly destabilizing to global growth, you'd expect the high yield market spreads to widen pretty considerably. Nothing doing there so far. Now that could change, but so far we don't really see any contagion spillovers whatsoever. But Mike, and I hate to say this because it's always bad to say this time is different, but this time, is it different because of the Fed's involvement in credit markets and frankly, because of the backstop that we've seen? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's exactly why uh, we're seeing the, the stability in the high yield market that we are. There's essentially three point eight trillion dollars of foam on the runway and that's not balance sheet foam that's broad money spendable assets deposits in the financial system and so because of the fed's actions i think that's exactly why we're not seeing the contagion but it also means that there's a lot of support for aggregate demand to continue running pretty hot in the u.s 
uh, even with these setbacks around the globe. So it's a, it's a good point, but I think the high yield market can still, still gives us a signal that there is a tremendous amount of liquidity and spendable assets in the system. And that means that the U.S. business cycle probably keeps chugging along, even if Evergrande does a hard face plant here, which seems highly likely. Mike, let's talk about the intersection of U.S. monetary and fiscal policy. Greg Valier, who's a policy strategist, just publishing his note a few minutes ago, talking about the fiscal drama happening down in D.C. surrounding the debt ceiling, infrastructure spending. And he said it will look so dysfunctional that the Federal Reserve may have to wait until winter when there is fiscal clarity to begin tapering its asset purchases. Do you agree with that? I don't agree with that. I think Powell was very clear. He essentially said in his opinion, we've all but met the threshold for tapering, which is simply a substantial further improvement in labor market conditions relative to where we started the year. And, you know, so the fiscal policy deliberations are going to continue to unfold. Uh, I think the Fed is still on course to start the taper, you know, this November, unless we get some really shocking data or a big financial market accident, which so far has not occurred. So those two things, I think, rather than the discussions that are going in, uh, going on in Washington uh, would be the only potential snags, but highly unlikely. I think we're on mm. autopilot here to, to see the Fed begin a taper in November that likely concludes mid-year next year. Just keep in mind that tapering means they're still adding money to the system. The Fed's balance sheet will likely expand by half a trillion dollars or more over the course of the fall through the middle of next year if they do a, a $15 billion taper per month. That is pretty unusual with an economy rapidly closing in on full employment. If we just look at the trends and what's happening to employment ratios and the unemployment rate. And so I don't think fiscal policy is going to be as disruptive of forces as some seem to believe. But, you know, we'll see how it goes next year. Okay, well, let's talk about you were mentioning the data there. Obviously, October 8th is going to be the next big one with the September jobs report. Powell said in his news conference, I just want to see decent growth. You know, it doesn't have to be anything stellar. Is it even possible that what happens on October 8th changes the equation for November? Or is that now kind of set in stone? Yeah, highly unlikely. I think it would have to be a pretty dramatic miss relative to expectations. It's always possible, but I think it's not very likely. So either something like that or some very sudden uh, financial market storm um, taking place. And so far, we're not really seeing that even with all the pressure on, on Evergrande and Chinese debt markets. So I think, you know, set in stone might be a tiny bit strong, um, but I, I think on a glide path to a taper for, for sure, pretty much all but in the bag. Mike, uh, yesterday we had on Danny Blanchflower of Dartmouth, and he called the current field of economics guessonomics, since we have no clue what is happening, basically, and our visibility is very low. He was saying that it's a mistake for the Federal Reserve to be tapering at all, because the underlying trend in labor markets is actually weaker, and that, frankly, the lack of participation has been a high concern. Do you agree? I would have to say I actually disagree with that. Um, so if we go back to the last cycle and we look at where the labor market is when the Fed tapered starting in January of 2014, announced at the end of 2013, the unemployment rate was considerably higher, about you know 140 basis points. Uh, the prime age employment to population ratio was lower by the same magnitude, a little bit more actually. Uh, and if 
you know, even if we look at this criteria, the Fed is now saying it wants to be more inclusive in terms of focusing on the labor market. If we look at African-American unemployment rates or Hispanic un unemployment rates, uh, we're in a much better shape now than we were back then when the Fed started the taper. So the Fed has already waited longer. And even if we look at these super core measures of inflation, right, so if we listen to the people that are in the temp temporary transitory base effect camp in terms of saying don't worry about this high headline inflation right now, if we look at the trimmed mean PCE deflator, the median CPI, the employment, to co employment cost index, those are all running hotter, not massively, but you know, I would say materially than they were when the Fed started the, the taper in the last cycle. So the Fed's already positioned itself behind the curve vis-a-vis -vis the last cycle relative to the labor market and relative to even these super core measures of inflation. So I would have to disagree on that score. I think, if anything, the Fed is probably going to end up behind the curve here because we could be rapidly reconverging with not just full employment but potentially beyond full employment by the you know by the mid mid-year next year the end of next year before the fed even gets off this zero lower bound that so final point is so so important mike it's so important we'll try and talk about that through the morning mike data there of mkm partners mike thank you sir Patrick Armstrong joins us now, Plurimi Wealth Chief Investment Officer. Let's start here, Patrick. Path of least resistance, higher or lower for this equity market? I think it's going to continue to be higher. I think um, QE is going to slow down. It's not going to stop over the next nine months, but it's going to be tapered, and that suppresses volatility. So I think we have a bumpier grind, higher potentially, but while we've got massive liquidity, you saw $1.3 trillion in the Fed's reverse repo yesterday, um, you've got negative real yields at negative 0.9%, and you've got very significant earnings growth forecast for the next uh, few years at uh, double-digit earnings growth uh, still is the consensus expectation. While those three things are in place, it's hard to see equities having a sustain, sustained sell-off. Patrick, yesterday people were saying that there was a reaffirmation of the reflation trade, as you could see from higher yields in tandem with higher equity prices. Do you agree that there's been some shift, or was it just choppy as people tried to make sense of all the headwinds and tailwinds? Yeah, I'm not even sure if it's a change in inflation expectations as it's a change in uh, basically what the Treasury has to yield. So you've got the Fed who's been buying 120 billion of bonds every month and that, that's going to slow. And if you look at inflation break-evens, they're largely unchanged over the last few days. So I think uh, the path of the 10-year yield moving higher is actually a slightly less negative real yield. And yeah. uh, you have to incentivize buyers to take those treasuries that the Fed won't be buying. And I think higher yields are needed for that. Okay, so Patrick, let me just pick this apart because you mentioned that yield, real yields are ticking higher. We're now around negative 90 basis points. You talk about three pillars that support equities, one being real yields, which are still steeply negative. I'll give you that. Liquidity, which as the Fed has said, it's going to start winding down and then earnings growth. So when you yeah. look at companies like Nike and FedEx over the last week, how nervous does that make you? I'm actually avoiding the companies that are the price takers and basically they're selling to a consumer that they can't massively change their prices, but they have input costs that might be at risk. So uh, companies like that, I think with the bottlenecks uh, the world's experiencing right now, you're probably best served staying away from them long term. Probably this is immaterial short term over the next quarter or two quarters. You might have some hit to margins. I'm not, I like to own the companies that are forcing those companies to have margin misses, basically. So the Molar Maersk, Tapeg Lloyds, shipping companies, 
they're able to charge whatever they want right now. There's so much demand for shipping and uh, there's so few vessels. Um, the other side of things, the semiconductors, you've heard it from all the auto companies, they can't produce as many cars as they want and it's going into handsets, televisions, refrigerators. There's a chip shortage and I think companies that produce the, ma the machines that make those chips, so ASML, Tokyo Electron, LAM Research, they're set for years of pricing power and very strong demand. Patrick, that tells me that you think these issues will persist to own the equities for a significant period of time, perhaps. Makes me wonder how you'd reconcile that call, that position in the equity market, with another call on, say, monetary policy. Do those two things stack up? Um, well, monetary policy, we've got the dots that indicate interest rates will be coming in a couple of years, but uh, it's the chairman who's going to make those decisions, and there's going to be a massive turnover in the Fed over the next 18 months as well about voting members changing. I think there'll be eight new voting members over the next two years coming in. So I think um, the QE, the tapering will happen. I think that's in the cards already. The interest rate hikes, I think those are a little bit pie in the sky. I think those rates will only happen if the economy is very strong, if we do have inflation, hopefully it's the good kind of inflation coming from demand rather than the bottlenecks I'm talking about. But uh, monetary policy, you even have some pressure if it is a stagflationary inflation. Um, the Fed's not got a good handle on how to deal with that. And I think Bank of England, same kind of thing. They're looking at those things that um, a strong demand-led inflation is something they're equipped to deal with. A stagflationary environment would be a lot more difficult. So, Patrick, just to build on what John was talking about, this is an important distinction to bet on supply chain disruptions lasting for a prolonged period of time, but still being bullish more generally on stocks indicates that you do see an acceleration in other areas, including wages, to offset those stagflationary trends. What do you have to see in the data to confirm that view? Yeah, you need to see continually higher wages. You need to see people coming back to the workforce and enticed back into the workforce with the higher wages. Uh, the NFIB surveys show a massive problem for American companies at basically filling job vacancies. And that's the biggest problem most of them are citing right now. So I think higher wages reduce margins, increases spending power of the consumers. So for me, I'm very confident there will be higher wages and that'll provoke higher demand, but also impact the profit margins for some companies. Patrick, I'm sure you heard at the top of the show there, John and Lisa arguing about why we have to care at all about the debt ceiling and the song and dance going on down in Washington, D.C. When you have to make investment decisions, do you care at all? I've almost written it off. Um, it's basically, Thank I don't you. know if it's like Pavlov's <laughs> dog at this point where you can only ring the bell so many times and uh, the debt ceiling, it just, uh, it's there. It uh, gets addressed when it needs to and it uh, <laughs> seems to be a bit of an overhang, but uh, it's never been in an event risk that's really been material. Patrick, thank you, sir. Patrick Armstrong, Chief Investment Officer. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.